Hello, I'm Brandon. And I'm Joshua. Today is Thursday, December 3rd, and this is episode 5 of Garbage. All right, on this week's episode, um, JCS has some um, XHCI bugs. Um, he's got some ear and headphones uh, updates. And we've also had a uh, listener request for some um, like Rails setup, how we're set up to run Rails on OpenBSD, what we use, what we have deployed, or what JCS has deployed. And I would like to talk a little bit about um, uh, just some dialogue comparing something like a PHP or Ruby that does server-side rendering versus um, using you know, a web service to um, query for data and parse JSON and put it back into the template. And So uh, I have some, some follow-up from previous episodes. I was talking about uh, XHCI uh, USB 3 bugs or bugs in the XHCI driver on OpenBSD. And so I was uh, still working on them. There were actually two issues. One was that hot-plugging uh, USB 3 devices stopped working, and then the built-in micro SD card reader on my Samsung laptop was not getting detected. So I fixed the, the latter bug um, and got the SD card uh, working, but the hot plug issue was still plaguing me, and... Uh, Mark Caitanis has been working on adding support for his new uh, MacBook Pro, uh, and he just went ahead and fixed both of those bugs. Ah, <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, and in like the same week, he's fixed those two bugs. He fixed um, an issue with uh, the Xorg Intel driver with or the KMS, and he got the Thunderbolt Ethernet device working on the MacBook Pro. That's awesome. Yeah, he's like a machine. I don't know how he can figure all this stuff out so quickly, but yeah, and like the fix for the XHCI thing, the one that I couldn't figure out, like I looked at the the diff that he committed and it was like two lines. Of course. I looked at all the the changes that I had pending in my tree and they were like humongous ones to like add all this proper stuff and um I guess none of that was needed. <laughs> so yeah. I feel a little, uh, I'm, you know, obviously relieved that it's fixed and I don't have to worry about it anymore, but it's kind of um, frustrating that I spent all that time and was not even like down the right path, really. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing about open source projects like this. You know, you have, you, you put a lot of time into it and I think sometimes you never wind up getting the fix. And then there's other times when someone comes along and, you know, they do a very remarkable amount of work and I think that's to Mark's credit more than anything that he just, he is really, really good at that kind of stuff. And, you know, he steps up and fixes a bunch of stuff and, you know, you're left with however much time you spent just <laughs> sitting on the table. Yeah. I mean, it's happened before. I remember there were like two separate ACPI bugs in the last few years that I've run across with new hardware. And, um, you know, I'm like deep down the rabbit hole of trying to fix you know, trying to fix this stuff. And I'm looking at like the ACPI specs and like the massive PDFs and stuff. And, um, I get like kind of a fix working. Like I identify the problem and I'm like, I think this is the fix. And I, you know, talk to Mark and he's like, Oh yeah, that's this. And he like, you know, fixes it the proper way. And it's way better than what I was doing, but you know, I'm happy to at least have, uh, been able to find the bug. Yeah, for sure. That, I guess, is uh, fixed now, and I'm still writing the trackpad driver for this machine, but that's another story. And a follow-up for the uh, ear and head the Bluetooth headphones that I had. 
that were not working. Um, it was getting very frustrating because that like firmware crash or whatever it was was showing up like multiple times per day where I'd be listening to uh, music or something and all of a sudden it would just stop and I'd have to take the headphones out, put them back in the charger to like reboot them and then plug them back in. Mm-hmm. So I uh, emailed Erin about it and, um, you know, basically complained and they were like, oh yeah, that sounds like a, a defect. So they scheduled a, a pickup and they are on their way back to Sweden to get RMA'd. I guess that's good news though, because now you know that maybe the product wasn't quite as horrible as it was leading itself to be. It was just a bad item. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it'll come down to whether the the next uh, ones, the replacement ones that I get, whether they have the same issue. Yeah, hopefully not. Yeah. I'll uh, have an update once I get them back, because I'm sure everyone is just so uh, anxious to find out. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. We had a, um, a listener request, Peter Young wrote in and uh was asking me about running um open bs or running rails on open bsd mm-hmm. uh, which i am doing quite a bit of on various servers for various uh services so for things like um my pushover app that um has a um api backend that's running everything in, in ruby on rails and so ruby on rails is being started by the unicorn uh, web server and then nginx is on the front end doing basically all the http and ssl processing and then that proxies requests to the unicorn basically cluster because there's a, a bunch of processes that listen on a single socket and take turns um, processing requests basically i'm using that setup for all of my services for pushover for the lobsters website for my personal website and some others that i have running uh, I used to use Mongrel instead of Unicorn, and oh. so like all of my scripts that I have on my servers to like control all those are actually still called Mongrel Control, but they control Unicorn. So I've been really happy with Unicorn. I haven't had any really issues with um, crashes or memory leaks or any of that kind of stuff. Unicorn basically runs with like one master process, and then it has all the children forked under it, and then if one of them dies or takes too long to process a request, the master kills it or respawns a new process, and that all kind of happens seamlessly. You don't really have to worry about it. So I would say if you're doing uh, Ruby on Rails on OpenBSD to uh, look into just using Unicorn and putting it behind Nginx, or I guess our HTTPD, which I have not looked into yet. Yeah, I haven't used that either. And I used to run um, some Rails apps myself, and... I remember there was a long time period where I was using Nginx in front of it, and it was like, oh, use this back end. Or, and then like a month later, I'd do an upgrade, and they'd be like, oh, no, don't use that back end anymore. Use this back end. And um, this went on, and, and I'm not exaggerating when I say there was literally a new back end to deploy your service on about every three months. Yeah, I mean, in this email from Peter, he's asking about one of those called Puma and another one called Caddy. I've heard of Puma. I've never looked into it. Um, I'm kind of in the frame of mind where if something's working, don't bother upgrading it. Yeah. And I know a lot of big websites use uh, Unicorn, and so there's really no reason for me to switch away from it. There's the other um, way of going about it, which is to use Passenger, which basically takes the old PHP approach of like embedding the interpreter inside the web server Yes. so that you don't have to like deal with 
that uh, middle part, which would be unicorn in my case. You can basically just um, set up your web server and point it at a directory, and then Passenger would take over and be like, oh, this is a Rails app. Let me uh, fire off a bunch of um, processes and then watch over them and stuff like that. I don't know. It might be easier to set up than like setting up Unicorn, but really Unicorn is like a configuration file of maybe like 10 lines, and then you just start it. It's listening on a particular socket that you put wherever you want, and then you just tell Nginx to proxy requests to that socket. So it's not very complicated, and I think the added complexity that Passenger would add just makes it prone to something going wrong. And, and I don't think it works as well. I've run Passenger in the past, and I've um, used the Nginx to proxy requests to Python applications, to Rails applications, to Java applications, to Go applications, and it, it works much better to proxy it to you know some sort of pool using nginx than it does to you know use something like passenger to get to a rails app yeah and it, if you want to talk about security i mean it makes more sense to keep all of that stuff out of your web server i mean some people are even going so far as to stick like a ssl terminator in front of their website or their web server so that their web server is isn't doing anything with like open ssl or libre ssl so you don't have to worry about you know, things like uh, Heartbleed where you can read memory of your web server. Yeah. So I would, yeah, I would not want to put more uh, stuff into the web server to handle all of this. Yeah, and even aside from security, it just, um, it lets you scale out the application a little bit more easily. Um, I, I find that upgrades are, are more easy. Um, I, I know that for maybe a personal website, you aren't upgrading every day, but you know, in a, in a production environment where you might have changes being pushed to certain applications, it's much easier to, you know, drop in a, a new instance of a backend and let it run and let some requests go to it and test it out that way than it is to, you know, have to stop and start your entire web server and hope that the backends come down cleanly and start back up cleanly and all that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, that's what's nice about Unicorn is that when you tell Unicorn to restart, it forks a new child that loads up the new, um, like in my case, the Rails app. And if it doesn't start correctly because of, you know, I was doing like editing live in production, that child, that new child process dies and then the master sees that the restart didn't work. So then it just aborts the restart and then keeps running on the old code. So you never have an instance where like you try and restart and then realize, oh, I screwed up and now my website's down. Um, it just doesn't restart and then tells you in the logs like, oh, you need to fix this. That sounds really well thought out. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, I don't know what to really say about any of these newer, uh, is it middleware, I guess is what they're calling it. It's whatever's between the web server and the, your actual application. Yeah. I, I can't really say anything either. I mean, um, I've, I've started even taking Nginx out of the mix, um, I, I built a similar piece of functionality using a Go application as to what you just described with Unicorn, where um, this process sits in place of Nginx and it handles SSL termination, and I actually spawn up backends um, and manage the backends on my own. Um, so I can say, hey, um, here's new code, De deploy it, and it will do what you just said, where it'll shut down a backend. Um, try and run this new code and if it fails and all this other kind of stuff. Um, and it's a little bit more, 
it's it's a little bit more trying to be like an enterprise solution where you know high availability is is a real important thing. So anyway, I've I've taken that nginx piece out of it, a simple like five line Go application to do SSL, and then there's of course a module or a bigger hunk of code that manages the backends and fires them up based on a configuration in the database that says what ports we have available to us that it can choose to start up backends and how many we are allowed to have and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I know that like RelayD and HTTPD have matured a lot lately, and I know that a lot of people are using those with great success too. Um, but for me, it was just a... Uh, it just seemed like one less piece to the complexity puzzle. And I just, I went with that because it, it was going to be more work to try and do that same type of functionality using four pieces of software than it was one piece of software that I wrote. Mm-hmm. Do you worry about the security of that? Like doing the SSL termination in the same process as your application? Um, a little, I think about it a little. <laughs> um, the, the one that I, deployed this to first is an internal application that uses SSL. Um, it's, it's a little bit less uh, vulnerable, but honestly, like the, the TLS that's built into Go applications, I mean, Google's rolling that out public-facing all day long, and right. uh, um, I'm comfortable with that, and, and really, it just proxies to another instance of a web application, so um, these other processes work similar to the way Nginx uses the the proxy matching or the reverse proxy functionality that it has. So I actually start up the backend processes on their own port, um, you know, so that they listen on 127, whatever, and then this thing is listening on the external interface and it can communicate to them. So it's a little bit separated, but probably not as well as it could be. But for an internal service, it's probably fine. Yeah, it's probably fine. That's, um, I mean... I, I would hope that it would be okay public-facing, but I have not taken the time to audit code on something like that, and nor have I done anything like that with Nginx or um, any of the other web servers that I've run. So does your Go application, how does it handle like multiple requests at once? Yeah, so the, the one thing that I really like about it is it just does asynchronous by default. Um, and uh, I don't have to think about it a lot, and I don't have to build too much into there to handle the request asynchronously. But I actually copied a proxy application that someone had done, um, and I, I made use of that, and it basically just asynchronously hands off those requests to a back-end process and lets them run, and then when they're done and they re- return back, it says, okay, I can go you know, handle this request and return back the response that we got. The one thing that it doesn't do as well as Nginx is if the backend crash, uh, crashes. Mm-hmm. Um, Nginx is really pretty good about, you know, even if a backend is up, if it's like throwing errors, it's usually pretty good about like saying, oh, I don't use that backend anymore. Um, but this proxy is not quite as good as that mm-hmm. with handling backends that are down and stuff. So. Uh, I need to spend some time there to make sure that that works a little bit better. But yeah, so you don't have to um, you don't have to like write your application knowing that it's going to be like I know it's not multi-threaded, but basically handling more than one request at once. It's all isolated and everything. 
Yeah, no, I don't. I don't really have to think about it. Um, I'm using Go's built-in HTTP library, and um, they have these handler functions, and they they just um, you don't have to think about that part, which is really nice. Their HTTP library um, does that for you, which I really appreciate. Yeah, I mean, with uh, Rails, I think newer Rails can run um, like multi-threaded and handle more than run one request at a time. But I'm still doing everything where each unicorn child process is handling one request at a time, and then the the master process or the web server is is handling the um, the like choosing which child to hand, to send the request to. Yeah. And um, I mean, like with the pushover uh, API, it's doing like I don't know, it's handling like ten requests per second all day. I haven't run into any issues as far as. Um, it being slow or anything. Yeah, that's it's actually kind of uh, interesting that you brought that up. One of the things that got me interested in Go is uh, a, a place that I was working. We were having problems with .NET um, because the I/O threads were blocking because we were making. Um, I'm I'm going to get this wrong. We were making another uh, socket connection to a backend process, and we weren't connecting asynchronously and sending asynchronously and receiving asynchronously asynchronously and closing asynchronously. So the worker thread, the I.O. thread, they would uh, stay together and they would block. The I.O. thread would block because the worker couldn't fork off and do its own thing. Hmm. And so we would send in 10 requests at once and they would all hit a single I.O. thread and they would queue rather than hitting multiple I.O. threads. And, um, and I said, well, this is stupid. You know, this is, this is a web application. You know, you're going to get requests and it should be able to do this. Um, it should know, IIS and .NET should know to send 10 different requests to 10 different IO, uh, threads. And, you know, even if they are blocking and tied to the worker threads, then, you know, they should still be handled in a pretty timely fashion. And they weren't. So I built it in Go. And I built the same type of thing in Go and, you know, what you were just asking about what happens when you get 10 at a second and it just worked. Um, it was making TCP calls into, uh, or it was making socket calls into our backend process and um, it all happened asynchronously and it just worked. And, you know, I was using like Go's bench tool and I told it to send in like, you know, 100 at once or something like that. And it, it just tended to scale really well and I didn't have to think about it. So, um, cool. I, I was kind of mad that they wouldn't listen to me about, you know, putting this application in place of IIS and this .NET application because it was very small and very lightweight, and it obviously fixed the problem. And um, if anybody out there has done, um, like, asynchronous calls in .NET, they'll agree with me emphatically when I say that it does asynchronous calls to things like databases really well. So if you say, like, make a call into the database, get some data do some work, those worker threads will go off and let the I.O. thread handle more requests without blocking, and, and that works because it's a database call. But if you do a socket or something like that, you mm -hmm. have to implement this entire layer mm. um, with, like I was saying before, asynchronous connect and send and receive and right. disconnect. That doesn't sound fun. No, it was horrible. <laughs> we, had, we had three different people try and implement it, and we, we all got it wrong. So I guess that's uh, all we have for uh, running Rails on OpenBSD, and I guess running uh, Go 
web applications on OpenBSD too. What are you using to manage uh, your, or do you just like have to fire it up once and not really worry about it? Yeah, well, that's that's kind of my plan, but it's it. I'm not sure that it is a really good plan, so I'm not advocating this here. But I just use a you know an init script and start it up and then stop it. Um, that's for the master process, and it's worked for me so far. But I don't know that it's necessarily the best way to do things. Yeah, I mean, I used to use like one of those frameworks that manages all that stuff for you. Um, I think it was called God. And yep. then uh, I remember that God ended up being the process that was using the most CPU and memory on the server. Yep. And I was like, wait, so the process that's monitoring everything is, it needs some monitoring itself. Mm-hmm. So I switched to like, you know, having to just do everything myself. I just wrote my own script that runs out of cron every minute and just checks that the process is running, that it's not using too much uh, memory or CPU. And then that kind of evolved into, you know, the script that I use to like manually restart um, a service or like take a service out of production basically um, and start it up again. And then um, like I added code in there that rotates the logs every, however often certain logs need to be rotated. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of just grown into this like one script that does everything for me. Yeah, that's always the problem. You have to have one thing that is really good at either running long or, you know, being reliable when it comes to checking the status and health of things. Yeah, I guess uh, we need System D on OpenBSD so we can manage our processes. Yeah, what was the thing called that uh, Dan Bernstein did? Um, oh, Demon Tools. Yeah, yeah, I ran that one I long, long time ago when I was using QMail. Yeah, I know a lot of people that still use that because they've kind of taken over maintainership of it mm-hmm. since uh, DJB doesn't ever update his stuff after he publishes it because yeah. it doesn't need to be. But um, <laughs> people have you know taken it over and they still use it for a lot of stuff. So, um, yeah. I never had a problem with QMail, and I know that there's a lot of angles that you can kind of dissect what makes good software and all that kind of stuff, but... In the in the long time that I ran QMail, I never had any issues, and it was more peer pressure that I needed to upgrade that I wound up changing to some different email service. Yeah, I used to use QMail too. Um, I think the issues that I ran into with it were like um, just being able to do some like a certain configuration with uh, the stock QMail you couldn't do. Mm-hmm. So then you had to like go find someone's patch for QMail that did it. Um, and I remember like at the ISP I used to work at, we used QMail and like VPOP mail to start handling, uh, virtual mail for all of our customers and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, you just kind of like start adding all the software onto it and it's, uh, like, well, most of the stuff that's running now wasn't, you know, that nice tight code that DJB wrote. It's all add on stuff that somebody else wrote. So we, uh, we just moved to PostFix, I think. Yeah, for sure. That kind of brings um, brings to light another interesting kind of topic that, you know, everybody says, like, don't build your own, like, web framework or authentication mechanism or crypto or all these kind of things. And they say to use other people's. And I've been kind of evaluating some different things and, and looking at some different tools. And um, I'm looking at a, an authentication framework. And, and you can find, like, 
20 of them um, in Go. And it seems like the thing to do is to use one that someone else published, but these things are junk. <laughs> um, and, and I've taken the time to audit them, and I have an idea of what I want. And I went out there, and I just started reading code, and um, you know, the first one I looked at, the code was so complex and so um, all over the place that I just said, I'm, I'm not even going to bother with this because the code is unreadable. Un, uh, it's just, there's too much going on here. Yeah. And I couldn't even evaluate if it did the things that I wanted to do in the right way because the code was a mess. So I moved on to the next one and I started to read, you know, some things in there and the code was readable, but they were doing things completely wrong. They just, they just got some things just completely wrong. And I thought, well, I could fix those things or I can, you know, roll my own. And, um, I think we have kind of an interesting thing happening with open source projects lately where, um, it's no longer, uh, necessarily the only option to say, don't build your own web framework and don't build your own, um, lock, or authentication mechanism because the stuff that you find out there is oftentimes just as bad as if you would have done it on your own. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. I, I don't know what the answer is to that, but I've, I'm seeing that more and more. And not to pick on the OpenSSL folks, but you know, here's an example of something that the entire industry kind of trusted and banked on being right. And, you know, they said, well, don't roll your, roll your own crypto, go ahead and use this. And we did. And then come to find out probably wasn't the best idea either. Um, and there were alternatives, but they weren't complete solutions. And so whatever, but now we're kind of getting a little variety in there with, uh, you know, LibreSSL and all those kind of things that have spun off from that. Yeah. I was actually thinking, um, a few weeks back, uh, did you ever use fetch mail? No. Uh, so it's like that, um, you know, I remember using it like in the nineties when you'd have to, uh, download all your email over pop three and then like read it on your own computer. Mm-hmm. But like that program was around forever and it's pretty, pretty bad code. Um, but it was like, you didn't really, back then you didn't see too many, uh, like diverse solutions to a certain problem. There was like, oh, you want to handle email, uh, run Sunmail or uh, Qmail or maybe Postfix back then. But um, the idea of like writing your own email server was crazy and writing your own tool to download email over POP3 or IMAP just seemed like out of the question. So most people would look to see what's out there. They'd find Fetchmail and then, you know, submit a patch to do whatever weird thing that they needed so then the program ends up becoming this huge pile of code that um, has like all these weird features in it. And now it's like we have the opposite where um, nobody wants to like use someone else's code. Yep. They just want to, um, and I don't know if it's like a generational thing, but it seems like, and maybe GitHub is responsible for it, but it seems like a lot of people want to, uh, I don't know if it's like they want, the fame of like, you know, making their own version of something like what we were just talking about, where there seems to be a new like middleware for rails every week. Um, and it's like, so what was wrong with mongrel? Um, like why did unicorn have to, uh, 
become like a new, I think it uses the parser from Mongrel, but it's basically like it was a new project. But even like all of those, like why do those have to become new things instead of just patching the old one? Yeah, because somebody will fork it on GitHub and then you have one flavor that does, you know, one one thing and then you have the other fork of it that does almost exactly the same thing but one little nuance differently. Yeah. So I wonder what is usually preventing most of those people from getting their, like, do they try and upstream their changes? Do they get rejected? Do they just want to, you know, make their own? I, I don't, I don't know what the, uh, what the, what the answer is. Yeah. I mean, well, now it's so easy to just say, I'll take what they have and I'll make it my own. Um, you know, for the most part, even, you know, restrictive licenses, you can copy the code and leave it on GitHub as a fork and you've satisfied the license requirements. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of, you know, do that for free. Whereas before maybe people said, well, then I'd have to set up a website and I'd have to serve up source code and I'd have to this and this and this. Whereas now it's just clicking a button on GitHub and then making some changes and you have your own project, you have your own thing. And, you know, it maybe it's the ease of use perhaps that's led to a little bit of a, um, irresponsible behavior perhaps is what it is, or mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know if it's irresponsible or not, but it seems kind of silly. A lot of times, you know, when you find four or five of the same project with little tiny minute differences, and then they sit there and they like rot on the vine for five years. Right. I was actually thinking of this today as well, because I was looking at my X, uh, my dot X session file of all the things that start up when I start X and um, like Four out of the like small handful of programs that get launched were all things that I wrote. And so I was thinking, like, how did it get to be that I am running all the software that I wrote? Like, why am I not using other people's software? And so I was looking at like what they are, because I've um since I've been getting back into running OpenBSD on my laptop, I've had to bring up a lot of this old code and like make it compile again and add features and whatever. And like one of them is um, the tool XBanish. I don't know if you use that. Uh -uh. It's basically a small utility that when you start typing, it hides the cursor. And then once you move the mouse again, it shows it. It's just so that you're not distracted by like this cursor in the middle of wherever you're typing. So I wrote that a few years ago because I wanted to, I needed that functionality. And there was a tool that basically did that called Unclutter. And it didn't it didn't work anymore. Like you'd run it and it wouldn't hide the cursor properly or it wouldn't show it properly. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go in there and fix these bugs. And I go into the code and it's like all this, like it's basically like an if def maze because it's old code that's been ported to all these weird platforms and has all this uh, stuff in there. And it, it was basically like really difficult for me to fix those bugs without rewriting a big chunk of the code. Mm -hmm. So I just started my own code and it's it was like way smaller it was a lot cleaner uh so that's why i'm running my own version of that and then like the same thing for a bunch of other utilities i basically wanted to run like i didn't want to have to implement my own i didn't want to have to reinvent the wheel so i'd go look at what's out there and it was either like garbage or it had like huge lists of dependencies I hate dependencies on projects like that. Yeah, like um, something I was working on uh, last night. Did you ever play Quake? Yeah. Okay, so like you remember the console at the top that would like 
uh, scroll down from the top and you can like type and that's where you type commands and stuff like while you're playing. Yep. So uh, I wrote a utility. So the first version of this I wrote in 2005 to basically emulate that functionality. Uh, so you could have like a long running X term that would just hide out in the top of your screen and then you can make it disappear and then come back with a keystroke. So you could always have like, um, like I'm using it now to run like my music player. So whatever workspace I'm in, I can just drop down and I don't have to like switch back. And Anyway, so I wrote this code initially in 2005 and I wanted it yesterday apparently. So I went out and, and pulled the code off of GitHub and started compiling it and stuff. And I was like, wait, why am I like, why there has to be somebody else that wanted this functionality by now. Like, why don't I just use somebody else's? So I looked into what was available and they like, they depend on like GNOME or KDE or something. And I'm like, yeah. all right, so I'm not going to pull in this massive list of dependencies just to run this little thing, this small terminal. So again, I have a utility that I have to maintain now that I had to write. And um, basically just to get the small amount of functionality that uh, is locked away in some massive code somewhere else. I think that's a good thing. You know, what you're saying here is though, is you're, um, is you're building something small and simple and light that solves the problem. And I think that's what um, Unix tools were built to do. I mean, right. they did a very specific task, they did it well, and then there was kind of like integration. And then we had all these authors come together and they're like, well, we just, oh, we don't have to build that ourselves, we can depend on this. And then you have like this dependency hell now, which is an absolute nightmare. Mm -hmm. And... I think we spend more time with tools to manage dependencies now than we do to actually like write code or troubleshoot the code and then, you know, versioning and libraries and all that kind of stuff. It's it's growing so complex and I think that's the fundamental difference, at least in this case, with what you're saying. You're saying, I want something simple that just does this very basic thing and that's all I want it to do. And that's just not what software has become. I mean, people make money on complexity and hard solutions and mm -hmm you know, enterprise grade, you know, look at all the things it does. And you know, I, I don't know, maybe that sells and maybe it's marketable, but I think, um, you know, you've chosen wisely, I think, in my opinion, to have something small and simple that just works. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's the, uh, going back to my fetch mail example, maybe fetch mail was at one time small enough that most people used it. And then over time, as it grew and got all these weird features that nobody wanted or the code started getting really bad, then it reaches a point where it's no longer like a typical Unix, uh, you know, do one thing well tool. Mm -hmm. And so then people start to scrap it and, and make their own. But then none of those replacements becomes like the de facto and replaces fetch mail for everyone. So then you start getting like it like splinters off and you have all these competing utilities that do similar things but nobody like chooses one as the winner basically yeah and that's where we're at now yeah it it is it's exactly where we're at now we have this splintered fragmented thing and um yeah it, it'll be interesting to see what continues to happen with software i think there are some other cultural things that are happening with open open source that are um kind of gonna steer what happens um, you were talking about the entitlement that people have uh, when they're using open source software um, and, and they use someone else's tool and they say, there's a bug in your code, you need to fix this. Yeah, I don't know where this came from. I've been seeing this on GitHub a lot lately where someone will just like open a bug on some 
you know, freely licensed software, and then basically like berate the author of the code because they haven't tended to this, you know, particular problem that affects the person opening the bug. And they just have this like huge sense of entitlement, like they're owed something. I wrote all this code for free. It fixed my problem. I'm putting it out here to solve your problem. And so you don't have to rewrite it. I'm sorry that, you know, it doesn't work for you, but you you know, you can't tell me what to do. And if I don't want to spend the time fixing the bug that affects you, uh, tough. Maybe someone needs to file a, a bug report with GitHub where they can make a donation to the author to, um, to fix the issue if that seems worthy to an author maybe they can publish their site and say look if you if you find a bug um and you want me to fix it you know throw some cash my way right yeah i don't know um again if this is like a generational thing or what but i mean we've seen this in openbsd too where people will post on the mailing lists and complain that some feature isn't implemented or some hardware isn't supported and they're like upset about it and it's like, well, how do you think that gets fixed or implemented or supported? It's like somebody has to sit down and and uh, write the code, and apparently it's not going to be you because you're just complaining about it. So, uh, listeners, we had some technical difficulties and uh, had to end our conversation and are now back together. So we're going to rejoin the conversation. Yeah, so you were talking about how um, the mailing list has uh, people email in and say, you know, why don't you implement feature X or why don't you support hardware Y? And, um, you know, we're, we're kind of like in a strange place with that because the the first thing is, is that the project isn't really driven by um, people's requests for hardware support or that kind of thing. Yeah, and yeah, we the, certainly don't have a lack of uh, features or bugs fixed because we didn't have the ideas or, you know, that we didn't know about them. Like a lot of them are things that we know about. Uh, we just don't have the manpower to to fix them. Yeah, that's right. And and I think um, one of the more positive things that's kind of like been happening is we've actually had some good donations and support from people to support the project, and that lets you know, certain things happen and get built because we can pay someone, uh, one of the developers, so they can devote time and, and work on certain areas of the project. Um, you know, like big innovations have happened that way that, you know, the other BSDs have benefited from um, the, what was it, the Intel DRM stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, JSG, or Jonathan Gray, he worked on that, and I believe that that was... Um, sponsored in part by the OpenBSD Foundation. And just, you know, being able for to pay someone to devote time to do that kind of stuff is a good thing. So there's, but there's so many things to do and so few people who work on OpenBSD in their spare time and, um, you know, and I think probably far less who do it full time. Yeah, um, like, the current uh, OpenBSD Foundation uh, fundraiser for 2015, uh, the goal was $200,000, and we raised 200 and well, I shouldn't say we, the foundation raised $240,000. Um, I was looking at the FreeBSD Foundation's website the other day for some reason, and 
in 2015, they have over $2 million in their bank account, <laughs> yeah. which just seems crazy to me, like that that many people have donated to the FreeBSD Foundation and they have all that money to uh, like sponsor projects and buy hardware and stuff. It's kind of crazy. It, it is crazy. And it's good, though, too, because the FreeBSD um, folks, they have helped out, um, you know, NetBSD and OpenBSD. So, um, you know, I, I think that um, it's good if you're giving to them because they pass it along into the other projects. But the other projects need have their own costs. Um, and, you know, there's certain things that there is not overlap on. So, you know, just kind of understand that it's cool that they have money and it's cool that they share it and um, they help out where they can. But there's also costs associated with uh, OpenBSD that, you know, need to be paid for electricity and hackathons and Internet connectivity and servers and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, some of that is, you know, kind of boring sounding, but that's really kind of the practical things that it takes to run an open source project. All right, so we were talking earlier about, um, you know, running Rails applications in OpenBSD, and, and I was kind of talking a little bit about uh, Go application. And it's kind of interesting to think of um, how web applications are structured. And, you know, everybody builds web applications, and there's a ton of frameworks, and there's a ton of opinions about it. And I used to write um, Rails applications and Python applications, and I know, JCS, that you still do this, where the HTML is rendered with the data or whatever it happens to be doing on the server. Mm -hmm. So you would you would get a request in, and your application handles the request and it queries the database for some you know piece of data, and then it renders it into HTML and then sends that back to the client, and then they just um, display that in their browser. Mm -hmm. And with that, you've got you know. Like if you set up a blog, you just cache that template once you've rendered it the first time. Um, so that's one way of doing things. And I did that for ages and ages and ages. And it was probably the past few years that I've started to do things a little bit differently. Um, and not as a criticism to that method, but we're using the data for more than just like a browser rendering of the information. We actually have, you know... Um, services that call into each other and it was easy to expose the data to a browser in json and also another application in json and the way that works is um, we just serve up a static html template css and javascript and that javascript makes a call into the web application gets back json and then draws it on the page um, and that's just a little bit different than the way the you know server side rendering of the templates happens. Um, there's like different challenges and different obstacles and all that kind of stuff um, that are faced with that type of um, web, I guess, paradigm or whatever you want to call it. Um, have you ever done stuff with um, like Riot JS where they do JSON calls or XHR calls into a service like that? Uh, I have not written anything like that. Um, I've had to. Uh, work with code that does uh, that has kind of a structure that way to me I don't know I can see the advantages to both and um, I guess what do you see as the advantage for doing it the 
the client side way? Yeah, so client side, the big benefit is there, there's less work on the server to be doing. So if you have something, um, you know, a server that's handling a bit of traffic, it, it tends to be able to serve up JSON really, really quickly. Um, and the browser is pretty good at being able to up, update certain portions of the DOM really quickly with the data that it gets back from this request. Um, and so serving up static files is kind of like the benchmark of how fast your web application is. It's, you know, everybody kind of says, like, how close can you get application requests to a static file being, you know, responded to and sent back out? Mm -hmm. And um, I've actually got it to the point where I, I find it to be a little bit more simple because I can write HTML and read HTML, and there's just a tiny little light layer of JavaScript on top of it. Um, and, and I, and I do like that a little bit more than mixing, you know, the, uh, you know, the server side rendering piece into the page, you know, you're putting in either Python in the page or some templating language in the page that, you know, depending on how that particular templating layer does it, you have to learn another tool to do that. And that's kind of like a silly thing because it's not too hard, mm -hmm. but, but the big advantage is, is that. Um, now other web applications can call into these other web services and get information. So for instance, um, you know, in my company, we expose, um, information to Salesforce that we also expose to this, you know, static web page. So I implement the web service one time and I make it return back like a list of files that we've processed. And then so the web page calls in, says, give me the files that you've processed, and it returns it back. And then Salesforce can call in there and say, hey, give me the files you've processed, and it returns it back. So that, that to me is where I think it's a little bit better. Um, just, just being able to ex access your data from multiple endpoints a little bit more easily. Um, but that's, that's just what I like it for. I, I don't think that it's necessarily a slam dunk reason to do that. Um, there's certainly complexity to building your apps that way. Yeah, I guess I still have that uh, crufty old uh, attitude of, you know, not requiring J JavaScript to mm -hmm. do, like, the basic functionality. Um, like, an example, the Lobster's website, you can read without JavaScript, um, and that was, like, a conscious decision, so I don't have to load in jQuery and all that stuff. Um, but also like, so when you have the, a site like yours where you basically show an empty kind of layout and then you load the data with JavaScript and like kind of fill in all the blanks, mm -hmm. I guess I'm, I'm thinking of it still in terms of like, if you wanted to crawl that website, uh, you would need a, f like a, a web crawler that could support JavaScript because it would basically have to do everything that a, an actual client would be doing. Yep. To, and to I think that's, yeah, I, that, that's, that's exactly right. And that's a good point. Um, most of where I spend my time is, um, web applications where people are, you know, manipulating data and viewing data. They aren't something where, you know, you're like with lobsters where you're accessing a new site, um, with it, you know, public facing and that kind of thing. So we, we mostly have like people paying claims using this where, you know, the data is constantly changing all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's a little bit more easy to be able to return back, um, 
you know, like dynamic data that way than it is to have, you know, the, the server crunching over a template because the data is constantly changing. And, and that's exactly right. So something like, you know, your blog that you want Google or whomever to crawl and, um, index, you have to make sure that the page is built in a way that they can do that well. Yeah. I do kind of both of the things that you were talking about where, so like with the pushover website, when you log in and you can like edit your devices and edit delivery groups and all that stuff, that's all done in Rails itself. And then that manipulates the database based on the models that are set up in the in Ruby. But then there's also the API backend that does a lot of the similar functionality, like you can edit groups through the API, through API calls. But the website, the front end, does not call those API endpoints. Um, it basically just calls the same code underneath that the API does. So I've seen it done both ways where it's like done the way that I just said, but then you can also make it so that you make like an internal API and then you have your own website calling your own API. But then like right. on the lobsters website, um, you were talking about where like other websites would need to fetch like a JSON representation of something. Mm-hmm. Where on lobsters, like if you go to lobsters uh, slash, I don't know, tags, if you go there in a web browser, it shows the HTML and renders it all like for a web browser. But if you go to slash tags dot JSON, Rails sees that and then just hands you the JSON representation of the data that it would otherwise render the template for. Mm-hmm. So you can have like this, the like controller method that would load all those tags from the database and do whatever it needs to. That's all the same f- depending on, you know, for both uh, formats. Uh, it's just looking at like what extension you're asking for and either serves you the JSON directly or uses uh, that array to render the template or whatever. Yeah. I, I remember that about rails. They have a, it's, it's one of the things that they built into there a long time ago where if you requested a CSV, you would get the same data mm-hmm. output as a CSV. And, and I think that's huge. Um, I mean, it would have saved me a ton of time building these applications that I've been working on now because, you know, we want the data exposed so many different ways. Right. And, and actually, um, I was mentioning earlier about some of the, the pitfalls of doing, um, a static HTML page and then loading JavaScript and then making a call to an application. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's really difficult is, um, you, you have a lot of like round trips, you know, to the server. Right. So you have this HTML page. And then, of course, you know, this is an enterprise application. So we need to make it look good. So we go get materialized CSS and materialized minified JavaScript. And we go get um, jQuery because we need that for Riot.js. Mm-hmm. And then Riot.js... Um, minified javascript library comes down and then you have uh this tags thing which is essentially the html um and javascript application for that particular page so you have your static html page and then you have this riot js tag and that tag basically replaces a certain portion of that static html page with the data that you request and so you're talking about a lot of round trips Mm -hmm. And, and they can't all happen asynchronously. You know, you, you go to, um, run Riot.js and it's a, and if you've 
you know, called for jQuery asynchronously, well, RiotJS says, well, I don't know where jQuery is. I need jQuery. And, um, and the same thing is true with the tags. You can't, you know, uh, you can't pull down RiotJS, uh, JavaScript library asynchronously because as soon as the HTML hits the tags portion, it's like, I don't know what a tags is. Right. So you, you have to do all these things in order. Um, and then once you have all that kind of thing done, I noticed that there's like two round trips that happen in the Riot.js library to fetch the tags and then perform the XHR request to go get the JSON data. So this page load times can be a little bit painful um, with that type of thing. And it's, uh, it, it's okay if you load all that stuff up one time and you kind of have like a single page design. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, you're gonna use Riot.js and materialize and all these other things for the rest of the pages in the site and you only go get the, you know, tags in JavaScript for the next piece of functionality. But even the first time, I mean, it, it's a lightweight micro framework and it still takes, you know, 300 milliseconds to get all the data back. Yeah. And it, it sounds like adding all of that stuff would make it difficult to debug, but Maybe it's easier to debug because you're mostly dealing with uh, like inspecting requests between the client and the server, and it's all just JSON data. I mean, it, it, the, the, yeah, the I mean the debugging isn't too bad. Um, of course, you know JavaScript is the the thing that everyone's chosen, so the debugging tools have gotten better mm-hmm. <laughs> because JavaScript just sucks, and. Um, so now the tools are really good for debugging it, but yeah, you're 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 right about that. You you can see the request come back. You can see, um, you know, events being fired, on load happening, and it says, "Oh, I made this call out," and all that kind of stuff. So it's not too bad to do that. I've I've worked with some stuff that's pretty painful, but the Riot JS and you know the JavaScript debugging and making JSON calls is not is not too terrible. Um. Possibly my other uh, aversion to using that kind of stuff is that the web browser performance on OpenBSD has always been really bad. Yep. And so like when you, you know, you load up a YouTube page or some, some page that has a bunch of JavaScript on it and like the whole browser hangs. And so I've just never like liked using heavy JavaScript uh, for any of my sites, uh, which I don't know. It's like I look at it as making websites a lot simpler, but maybe I'm uh, missing out on a lot of of useful stuff because I'm stuck in that mentality that uh, anybody else other than me has a, a slow web browser. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the, t- the two edges of that sword. One is you're not inflicting pain on people. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think the the benefit that you get is really, really minimal. And the only reason that I do it is because, um, you know, this is a, a company that absolutely needs to have these certain types of functions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, if, if I didn't need to accomplish um, a certain goal, then my solution would probably look different than what it is now. Because I think the JavaScript frameworks and the amount of tools that come along with them are horrible. One of the things that I ran into with Riot, I was like, man, look at this lice this micro framework and the micro framework is a few hundred K <laughs> by the time you get all the CSS and the JavaScript. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought that that was 
ridiculous. And, you know, people criticized me for using a quote-unquote micro framework because it was, you know, not going to do what I wanted it to do. And I thought, and okay, what does your website look like? And I went to this guy's website about loading um, applications quickly, and it was 12 megabytes of stuff. <laughs> and it took several, I think it was like 20 seconds to load wow. this page. And I just thought it was ridiculous. So um, the bar was set kind of low for me. And at that point, I was like, oh, of course, micro frameworks are the thing. But uh, even with a micro framework, if you want to um, compile those tags, basically HTML and your JavaScript into um, a minified or compiled version so that it's a little bit um, quicker to go between the server and the, um, and the client for this lifecycle, you have to do like a grunt task or some other you know, node package management hoopla starts to get in the mix where like, oh, just NPM install this and then you can do that. And then you're at, you know, 200 megs worth of libraries. And, yeah. you know, you know and, and all, I, all you want to do is take some HTML and compile it into a little bit of a minified JavaScript. Yeah, that was the problem with newer versions of Rails that switched to the asset pipeline. So now you have to compile your assets and you basically compile the CSS um, I mean, I, I guess it was to support like those um, preprocessors so you could uh, have like variables in your CSS files, which I do use, but uh, that and like minifying your JavaScript and like combining all of your JS files into one so that the client only has to download one file. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there's benefits and it speeds everything up, but like you said, that means that I then had to install Node on my server and uh, do whatever other... Uh, I had to install just to get all that stuff working. So upgrading to the newer versions of Rails, I I would do that and then still not enable that asset pipeline so that I wouldn't have to deal with um, compiling all that stuff every time I want to like redeploy. Yeah. Yeah. Complexity in web applications is completely out of control. It's, it, it's just not even, it doesn't even make sense anymore. And the the reason I think people are doing it now is because it makes them money. Yeah. You know, you, you, it takes a team of people to sit down and build this application and this solution. And it's just so many moving parts to do something so simple. Yeah. And I think it, it doesn't help that we're still stuck with JavaScript as the only language that you can use because yeah. then people see that JavaScript has all these flaws. And so they start implementing their own languages on top of JavaScript which just seems mm-hmm. ridiculous because now you're compiling code into JavaScript that then gets interpreted by a web browser. And then co- like there's so many layers there. It's just ridiculous. So it's like yeah. our computers and our phones keep getting faster, but all this crap that we keep executing on top of them every time you go to a web page keeps getting bigger and bigger. So it's like nothing ever gets faster because it's like we keep, it's like, Oh, the computer's faster now. It can handle this stuff quicker that means I can, uh, you know, add this much more stuff on top of it. Or, oh, your data connection is this much faster, so I can have you download this massive library where I couldn't before. So we're not really advancing anywhere. Yeah, it, it's really a sad state right now. I do like um, JSON. I, I think that it's much better than, um, you know, XML for certain types of things. Mm-hmm. Um and, and, oh my gosh, you want to talk about horrible things that I'm kind of glad I'm not doing anymore. Remember, um, 
uh, XSLT. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, XSLT and .NET was like my least favorite thing to do in the world. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was kind of like, a, again, a server-side rendering platform that was just horrible. So uh, PHP and um, the Ruby templates and Python templates and those types of things uh, they work well, and they might put some CPU cycles through your server, but they are nowhere nearly as bad as XSLT. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you guys have, you know, web web applications, you really need to be careful with the amount of stuff that you deploy. Um, I, we were talking about the libraries, and I pulled down a calendar library, and I'm not a, criticizing this calendar library, but I found out that it was calling home. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and, and it was calling home to validate licenses. And I thought, okay, that's reasonable, but it was actually sending information that I may have implemented in my application that was sensitive. Wow. And, and so, like, if, if I was using a GET request to do a search or did something silly that no one on the web ever does, mm-hmm. uh, it could have leaked sensitive information, you know, right back to that person's um, licensing server and said, oh, I know who's using my software without a license. Wow. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's really getting kind of... And that was in minified JavaScript that I found that, by the way. Yeah, so good luck, you know, trying to actually get into that code. Yep. But anyhow, yeah, the web the web state of affairs is, is crazy right now, and, and JavaScript is, is completely painful, and I hope that um, maybe we can find some like more sane ways to do JavaScript because some of us need it. And I think that you're taking the right path by not using it where you can, um, you know, and, and like I said, the applications that we have at work, I think it, it is the right solution for some of those things. And I try and make it as lightweight and as manageable as possible, but it's still, um, it, it it's a bit more than I want to stomach a lot of times. Yeah. I think, the way that you're doing it where you basically just implement the API and then you have all of the client side stuff being done on the actual client. That's probably really beneficial for like teams that have development team and then a design team. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm thinking like with a big rails app, you'd have to have your design team, like what send you like HTML partials or something to, if yep. they want to change the design of the site. Whereas if you're doing it with a client side JavaScript framework, like you are, the backend, the developers would never need to change anything because the API is still exporting the same JSON data that it always has. And then the, the front-end design team is free to move that stuff around the screen wherever they want. And and I've seen people trip and fall over that too, you know, where the API doesn't change and the front-end does and, you know, it, it breaks things. But I think it's actually easier to not break things, even though people do. Um, when the API doesn't change and the web is the web layer is free to do what they want, yeah. Broken templates. I've seen broken templates a lot, and or I've done, I've broken a lot of templates myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, good. Well, um, I hope you guys enjoyed our uh, discussions this evening. If you have anything that you want to hear us talk about, please let us know. Um, we do have quite a few things in the queue, but. Um, I've been a little busy this past week and I didn't have a chance to process all of them. So I, I want to take a little bit more time to prepare for some of these things before we start discussing them on the podcast. But reach out to us on Twitter and we'd be glad to uh, try and get your topic on the show and talk about it. 
Yeah, you can reach us on Twitter at GarbageFM. Uh, subscribe to our show's RSS feed on our website at garbage.fm or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Um, and if you have suggestions that uh, need more explanation, you can uh, email us. The contact is on our website. Uh, Brandon, where can people find you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm at NoMercyMod with a K-N-O-W. And you can reach me on the web at jcs.org or on Twitter at jcs. Thanks.